Revelation chapter 20 tonight. Two more chapters, and we are done our study of the book of Revelation. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Three weeks from tonight, we start an in-depth study of the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter. Looking forward to that. Going from the end of it all to the beginning of it all, if you will. As I said before worship, this chapter is all about the context of Christ's kingdom. And a couple of things I want to say up front about that. Why a thousand-year earthly kingdom? It fulfills prophecies. It fulfills promises that God made. So that's one reason why. Two, it is sort of the first step God is going to take that's going to last for eternity of rewarding his faithful people. See, you and I are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ over that millennial kingdom. So in a sense, that's the first step that God is going to take to reward his people. It's also going to be a time of instruction Let's not forget that this is a very unique period in history, unlike any other. There will be those of us who go into the millennial kingdom with our glorified bodies. But there will also be those believers who have become believers during the tribulation period, who survived the tribulation, and who go into the millennial kingdom with their non-glorified bodies, and who then during the millennial kingdom will have children who will be born throughout the millennial kingdom in non-glorified bodies. So there will be the glorified and the non-glorified all in the same kingdom on earth. And I say that it's going to be a time of instruction for a couple of reasons. One, Many people who come into the kingdom who are the Lord's because they've given their life to the Lord still do not know a lot about God. And so for that thousand years, there's going to be worship leaders needed and, and, and pastors needed and Bible teachers needed and, and people who can help others study the word and people who can help disciple others and whatever because a lot of them are going to be coming in with no spiritual foundation or very little spiritual foundation and God is going to want us to take them through the Old Testament and the New Testament and to familiarize themselves with the things of God through that 1,000 years. See, time of instruction. It's also a time of instruction for all of us because God is going to remove the influence of Satan for that thousand years and going to show us that even without the influence of Satan, that man is totally depraved. 
He's going to show man firsthand that even without Satan, man's bent is always to rebel against God and to live independently of him. So I've divided this chapter up into four sections. Before the kingdom, Satan is bound, the first three verses. Then from verse 4 through 6, during the kingdom, the saints will reign. Verse 7 through 10, after the kingdom, evil will be defeated. And finally, verses 11 through 15, after the kingdom, unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God of the universe. Well, let's first look at before the kingdom, Satan is bound. Notice John writes, I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. The angel is coming from the presence of God. The angel is coming with the authority of God because the angel is holding the key to the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss is the temporary place of incarceration for certain demons or evil spirits. That's what the abyss is. And God has used this abyss, this temporary place of incarceration for demons or evil spirits, for a long, long time. This is referenced in 2 Peter. It's referenced in Jude. The thing I want to emphasize, though, is that according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, it is Jesus who holds all the keys, the keys of death and Hades and the abyss and all of it. He has all authority. So notice that the angel is coming not only in Christ's authority, but with his authority by having the key to this abyss. And he's going to throw someone into that abyss for a thousand years. And that person is described here in four ways. He is described as, verse 2, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. We know who he is. He is, first of all, described as the dragon. It speaks of his fierceness and his cruelty. He hates us and lives for our misery, our death, and our destruction. He is described as the ancient serpent because that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3 and the garden and the fact that he is a deceiver who deceived Adam and Eve from the very beginning. He is called the devil, the diabolos, because he is the accuser. He is the slanderer, if you will. He is the one who seeks to divide people from God and people from one another. And he is called Satan because he is our arch enemy. He is our adversary. He is our ever-present opponent. And notice that the angel, and we don't know who this angel is. Could it be Michael? It could be. But because he's coming in the authority and power of God, it could be any angel who has the authority and power to be able to subdue Satan himself. In fact, you'll notice here four things. First of all, he seized Satan. Then he tied him up. Then he threw him into the abyss. And then verse 3 says he sealed it. Okay? And he did so for one 
thousand years. The angel then threw him into the abyss, verse 3, locked and sealed it so that he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. So Satan's activity, again, even his presence on earth, is completely curtailed during the whole millennial reign of Christ. His activity is brought to a halt during the entire 1,000 years. His deceptive work among the nations is stopped for 1,000 years. But then notice at the very end of verse 3, after these things, he must be released for a brief period of time. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about this when we get to verse 7 through 10. But let me at this point just say this. Why does God Lock up, if you will, Satan for a thousand years. What's the purpose? Twofold. And this comes out in verses 7 through 10. First, even after a thousand years of being locked up, Satan's plans are the same once he gets out. Satan does not change, Satan is not reformed, Satan does not have a second, you know, uh, a light bulb moment or second thoughts about, no, no. He goes right back out to deceive the nation. So what God is showing is that Satan is who Satan is and who he's always going to be, and no amount of locking him up and all of that is going to change him. But it also shows us that it doesn't change the heart of man either. Because even in this perfect environment, we talked about from Micah, no war, no fear. Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth, okay? That for those babies and children who are born to those in non-glorified bodies, many of them will conform to the rule of Christ outwardly during that thousand-year millennial reign, because they have to, he will rule with a rod of iron, but inwardly in their heart, at the first chance they get to rebel after that thousand years is over, they'll take it. They'll take it. Which also then reminds us that one of the contexts, if you will, that even you and I are going to have to realize during the, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is we're not to perfect eternity yet. Even during that millennial reign of Christ, which is why you and I are still going to be serving and ministering and doing a lot during that thousand years on earth of what we're doing now. Because there will be many people born during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ who have an outward appearance of religion or spirituality, but in their heart, they're not there. They're not there. We'll talk more about that in later weeks when we get into other subjects and other passages, even our study of 2 Timothy, but it's fascinating when you think about the climate and what's going to be going on and the fact that we're going to be a part of it while we're here on earth. So that's the first three verses, during the kingdom or before the kingdom, Satan is bound. And if you want just one word to describe that part of the chapter, hiatus. Satan's on a hiatus 
God sends him away for a thousand years, all right? But then we come to verse 4. During the kingdom, the saints will reign. Then I saw thrones, verse 4, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. Let's stop there. The Bible tells us, first of all, that the 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. In other words, they will manage all those who are part of the 12 tribes. That's part of their assignment. The Bible also tells us that the saints, that's you and I, New Testament saints, who've accepted Christ as our Savior, 1 Corinthians, will judge angels during that period of time in the millennial kingdom and on throughout eternity as well. Judge. It simply is the power and business of leading. God is looking for leaders and will need leaders in the millennial kingdom, those who literally can make decisions. That's what the word judge means. You see, many Christians have a, maybe a false understanding of the millennial kingdom. You and I are going to have to do much of what we do now just in a different environment. We're going to have to make decisions. Everything's not going to, God's not going to make everything for us. He's not going to do everything for us. He's going to, like he does today, give us all the equipment and all the resources and everything that we need. And even there, we'll be in our glorified bodies, which will be great. But we're still, he's still looking for those who will step out and step up and lead and be willing to make decisions because there's a lot of management that needs to go on in a worldwide kingdom. And obviously we learned from Micah that the center of educating the world about God will come from Jerusalem, but we know today that with technology, again, that can be live-streamed all over the world. And God's going to need people in all parts of the world to be able to lead and minister and help people with understanding worship and the Word of God and all these different things. Yeah, there's even going to be children's ministry during the Millennial Kingdom because of all the children that are born. There's going to be youth ministry. There's going to be all of that during the Millennial Kingdom. And if there's a word that I would use that starts with the letter H to describe this part of the passage, it would be the word honor. God gives us the honor through his grace of being able to rule and reign with him. What an honor God bestows upon us. Because going back to even what we've been talking about on Sunday, God sees so, most of the time, the majority of the time, God sees so much more potential in us than we ever see in ourselves. And God wants to draw out that God-given potential. Because God sees us this way. And let's keep going because I want to show you more. Not only are the saints given this opportunity to lead and honor to lead, but it also goes on to say, I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded or martyred during the tribulation period because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These had not worshipped the beast or his image and had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or hand. So they came to life, they were resurrected, and they also reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The word reigned means to exercise dominion or to rule. Again, God is always looking for leaders. And I personally believe 
that God made all of us to be leaders. He wants every Christian to be, you may not see yourself as a leader, but God does. And in a sense, we all usually throughout our life are leading in some way, even as it starts in the home. I mean, husband's supposed to be the leader, and the husband and wife, the mom and dad, are supposed to be the leaders of their own children. And then from there, it goes out, and it goes into church, and it goes into community, and it goes into all these different places. God is always looking for leaders. Now notice, the rest of the dead, and that means unbelieving humanity, they are not resurrected until after the thousand years are finished. That's what we're going to get to in verses 11 through 15, what's called the great white throne judgment, you see. So all those unbelievers throughout history and even the unbelievers during the tribulation period, they're not resurrected. They're not part of the millennial kingdom. The only ones that are part of the millennial kingdom are the saints of God who have died or been raptured and been glorified or the tribulation saints who have been saved during the tribulation also then are resurrected and brought in. And then there are those who have accepted Christ also who survived the tribulation in their non-glorified bodies, again, who come in and are part of the millennial kingdom as well. But it starts out, everybody's a believer. But like I said, you've got a thousand years for people to have children. And there's going to be tons and tons of children born worldwide during that thousand years. And many of them will grow up and they will not be part of Christ's permanent kingdom because... God gives them a choice, just like he gives us a choice today. And, and it also reminds, I, I could say this later, but it also reminds us that environment doesn't necessarily, we're not able to predict how people are going to go. There, there are, say, children that grow up in a Christian home but don't necessarily ever become Christian or want to have anything to do with God. And there are people that grow up in very dark environments who become very dynamic Christians because it goes back to what we're going to talk about in just a little bit, and that's the heart. The heart. Because let's not forget that the babies and the children and the young people and the adults and all that who are born during the millennial kingdom, they could not grow up in a better, more perfect environment. Christ is reigning. It's a perfect earth as, as much as earth could be perfect. And yet, not everybody is going to have their heart there with God. Okay? Blessed, verse 6, and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and they will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Five things the Bible says about those who are part of the first resurrection, who are part of believers in the millennial kingdom. First of all, we're blessed. It simply means fortunate, happy. 
Same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Second, they are described, verse 6, as holy, distinguished, distinct, set apart from everyone else. Third, the second death, eternal separation from God, has no power or authority to affect them ever. They will never be separated from God. And they will be priests of God, meaning they will live and serve in close proximity to God. The concept of a priest were those that literally had an intimacy and a connection with God. They were the ones that were able to go into the holy place and then even the high priest into the holy of holies. It speaks again about not only serving, but living in close proximity to God. That's what we will be part of. And then they will reign with him. It not only means to rule. Literally, in the original, it means to be kings and queens. See, again, God sees us as kings and queens. He sees us as spiritual royalty. So you can imagine how it grieves the heart of God and breaks the heart of God when he sees his children think of themselves so low. It's almost like we live in two extremes, even as Christians. We either have, you know, we, we either struggle with pride to where we think too much of ourselves and we live independently and don't rely and depend upon God because, you know, we've got this, or we think too way too low of ourselves and don't see ourselves as God sees us and don't see the value and the worth and the potential and everything that we are to God. We've got to see ourselves as God sees us. And God sees us as those who have the capacity and the ability through him to be able to be kings and queens and rule this world as he always intended. And that's what we're going to get to do. That's the opportunity God is holding out for us if we are faithful to him, you see. During the kingdom, the saints will reign. So before the kingdom, Satan is bound, goes on a hiatus. Second, during the kingdom, the saints will reign. What an honor is bestowed upon us. Then verse 7, after the kingdom, evil will be defeated. And this, again, would use the word heart. And the reason I use the word heart is because, again, this passage is describing that the most important thing to God and should be to us is the condition of our heart. Because all these people that we're going to read about in just a moment who rebel after that thousand years is over has grown up under the leadership of Jesus himself physically on earth and underneath the leadership of his people. They could not have been part of a more perfect environment than what they are but their heart never was in love with god in a sense it's a little bit similar i guess to the angels who fell that even being in the very presence of god and seeing him in all his glory it for some of them that wasn't enough you see so notice when the thousand years are finished Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out 
to deceive, to lead astray the nations at the four corners of the earth. There again. After a thousand years, Satan's plans do not change. He's exactly the same after he comes out of the abyss as he was when he went into the abyss. He is just bent on one thing, and that's to try to undermine God and undermine the kingdom of God and undermine the people of God. And notice, he brings together at the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog. There are a couple of Old Testament books that reference these two names. I believe that these two simply reference the enemies of God among the nations of the world. And notice, Satan brings them together for one final battle. See, to be technically correct, the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation is not the last battle on earth. This is the last battle, if you want to call it a battle, just like you really can't even call the battle of Armageddon a battle. It's over before it starts, and so is this one. Notice how many people around the world are rebelling against God. They are as numerous as the grains of sand in the sea. No small number of people. Even after being part of the millennial kingdom, their heart is not toward God or the things of God. The first chance they get, they're right there with Satan to try to do battle against God. Sobering, isn't it? They went up to the broad plain of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem, where Jesus will literally be at. But again, notice, no real battle takes place. Fire comes down from heaven and literally devours all of them. Done. Gone. That's it. And the devil who deceived them, oh, finally. Finally, he's thrown into the lake of fire with his cohorts, the other two members of the satanic trinity, the beast and the false prophet, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Finally, finally, evil will be removed from the equation, but not till after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. You see. So maybe now, I'm hoping that maybe for some of you especially, you're getting a little bit maybe more clarity as to what the millennial kingdom is and what it's all about. And it's not heaven, <laughs> you see. It's not heaven. Almost, but not heaven yet, you see. And then we come to, I think, maybe one of the most sobering and serious parts of Scripture. This is the part where after the kingdom, all unbelievers from all time will stand before the sovereign God of the universe. This is not us. 
We're already saved. We're already part of the kingdom. And we stand before God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about in the book of Romans is to reward us for our faithfulness and service here on earth. It is to determine what roles or responsibilities or opportunities, or privileges, and honors God will bestow upon us during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ and then on through eternity, which is why it does matter how we live for Christ, even after we're a Christian. But that's not what this is. These are people that literally are standing naked before God, not dressed in the righteousness of Christ, but only dressed in their own righteousness, which the Bible says is like filthy rags. And so notice verse 11. Then I saw a large white throne, and the one who was seated on it, the earth and the heaven, fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I'm going to come back to that at the end. And I saw the dead... Those who died apart from Christ, the great and the small, standing before the throne, God is no respecter of persons. Then the books were opened, and another book was opened, the book of life. So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. Question for all of us tonight and those of you who are watching, is your name written in the book of life. Why? Look at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name written in the book of life? And can I say at this point too, call it the lake of fire, call it hell, call, call it whatever you want to, eternal punishment. To think lightly of hell will eventually lead to thinking lightly of God. There are even Christians who try to, like, you know, push the, the, the reality of the lake of fire and all of that, like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Need to come to grips with that. And to pretend like hell is not real and doesn't exist and all of that is to also think lightly of God. Jesus, while he was here on earth, talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Simply because he wanted to try to motivate people not to go there. And you might say, then what, how do we apply a passage like this? Because I'm not there standing at the great white throne. No. You and I aren't there. But we probably know people that right now, if things don't change, will be there. And to me, this is one of those passages that wakes us up and motivates us to be more evangelistic or, if nothing else, to pray a little bit more diligently for the lost and to ask God to give us opportunities to share the only hope they have 
of not standing there one day, and that is to have their name written in the book of life. Because the Bible's God is very clear. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life one day will be thrown for all of eternity into the lake of fire. Now notice, back up to verse 12. They were judged then according to their deeds. In fact, this is repeated at the end of verse 13. Each one was judged according to his deeds. Why? Because that's all they've got. They don't have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ like you and I have. All they have are their works, which also then leads to this very important theological truth. And that is just as there will be degrees of reward and different degrees of roles and responsibilities and honors and privileges given to the saints based upon our different faithfulness and devotion and commitment to Christ, there will also be degrees in hell. Different degrees of torment and horrors that people will experience throughout eternity. In fact, the final word that I would use to describe verses 11 through 15 would be horrors. This is horrific. And yet it's real. And the Bible says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to his deeds. Human language is incapable of describing both the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. But I want us to come back to verse 11. Because here's something even for us to be reminded of. Notice the Bible says, I saw a large white throne and then says these two words, the one, the one who's seated on the throne. We even sung about that tonight. Do you notice that it all at the end of everything else comes back to just the one? In fact, notice that the Bible tells us at this point in history, earth and heaven literally flee from God's presence and they're found no more. Think about that. Only God is left, if you will, and all the people that God ever created and brought into existence. That's it at this point. He has not yet made the heavens and earth. So it's just these people out there in the expanse of some, something, but it's just them and God. There's no more earth. There's no more planets. There's no more heaven. That's all flee away from the presence of God. It's just God and them. And the reason I wanted to bring it back to this is because I think that's where God wants us to always get back to, even as Christians, is to remind ourselves that at the end of it all, it's just about God. At the end of it all, creation is going to be gone. And yes, God is going to create the new heaven and the new earth and have a new Jerusalem. In fact, next week, I hope you'll come back, we're going to talk about what will eternity be like? One of the questions I get asked more than anything else as a pastor is, what's it going to be like in heaven? Or what's eternity going to be like? We're going to answer some of those questions next week from chapter 21. But tonight, I want to bring it back to this. 
This is an amazing scene when you think about it. Earth and heaven flee from the very presence of God at this point, and there's no place for them anymore. It's just God and humanity. And yet, even for us, living here on earth, and we're going to talk more about this even Sunday, we can get so entangled with earthly, worldly, temporal, physical, material things that in the end of it all, it's not even going to be around. It doesn't matter. The only thing that it's all going to come back to is the one who's seated on his throne. Even earth and heaven are going to be gone, and it's just God and us before God creates the eternal state. And that's why God even wants us, his children, to make sure that we prioritize him above everything else, because in the end, that's really all that matters. It all comes back to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight, even sometimes, Lord, for these tough passages of Scripture. But Lord, we know that you're just trying to keep us tender and sensitive. You're trying to stir our hearts. You're trying to remind us, even as your people, of what's most important and to keep our eyes on eternity and to remember that, that what we do now has a connection to eternal things. So God, I first of all just want to thank you that you're going to allow us to rule and reign with you. You're going to give us such an honor. Lord, I can't wait to be part of your millennial kingdom. I believe you're going to allow me opportunities just like you have here on earth, and I believe you're going to allow all of us, Lord, to keep using the gifts and the abilities and the talents, Lord, to bring honor and glory to you during the millennial kingdom and to be able to instruct thousands upon thousands of people who are going to flood into the millennial kingdom and who have no spiritual background, no spiritual foundation, and they've got to be brought up to speed, so to speak. And you're going to use us as your leaders to be able to do that. And God, I pray that even tonight, Lord, that we would begin to see ourselves as you see us, that you see us with the potential and capacity to be able to rule and to reign and to lead and to be your kings and queens on this earth. God, may we step out and step up and begin to, to fulfill the potential that you've placed in us even now, God, before the kingdom comes. But God, we are also reminded that Satan is a very active enemy. And he's always out there trying to undermine your work and your kingdom and your people. So God, may we be alert today, even as the one who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that we are mindful of him, that we don't fear him, but that we respect our enemy and keep a spiritual vigilance. But God also, give us a heart for the lost. Help us to be lights. Help us to be good examples. Help us to pray for those that don't know you yet. Help us to use the opportunities you give us to bring people to Christ. Because God, one day the reality is that everyone whose name is not written in the book of life gets thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And just as much as it is a joy to think about 
eternal bliss and glory with you, God. It does cause us to pause and go through a period of reflection to know how many people, God, will go out into eternity eternally separated from you and all that is worthwhile. So God, while we're here, help us to be all that we can be to draw people to you, God. Knowing that it's got to be you, but that you can use us, God, to, to draw people to you. We can be that salt and light that you call us to be. So Lord, I pray that through our worship time tonight that was just so moving, so marvelous, God, and through our time together in your word, God, that our hearts have been strengthened and our hearts have been stirred to go out of here and be all that we can be for you, to take the days that we have left on this earth and do everything we can to bring glory and honor to you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.